Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which I talk about my life and career as a successful comedy writer in British television. I'll also talk about my interests and inspirations and chat with the occasional guest. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it and give us a five-star review. To find out more about me or to order any of my books, please check out my website. All the links are in the podcast notes. Also, if you've got any questions you'd like me to answer in a future episode, then go to the Contacts tab on steamspokenmirrors.com. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Popular demand. No, not me. This week's behind the scenes guest who is making a very welcome return visit. This time chatting more about his myriad interests outside show business and his career working as one of the busiest, most popular family entertainers on stage and television. When not performing, his life is nothing like you'd expect. He not only pursues a rigorous daily health and fitness regime, he's also an authority on horror and science fiction literature, films and television series. In three separate appearances on TV's Mastermind, he clocked up maximum specialist subject scores, answering questions on The Vampire in Cinema, Werewolves on the Silver Screen and the film series Planet of the Apes. He's also an artist and a painter, and he's written two best-selling volumes of horror short stories entitled Dead Knobbers and Doomsticks and Dead Knobbers and Doomsticks 2. Please welcome the polymathic Joe Pasquale. Ah, Colin Edmonds, guess what? What? I've got no trousers on. <laughs> I can't... <laughs> I can't see. I can't I'm see. Interested. I just no. thought you'd like to know that you're interviewing me with I'm pantless. <laughs> Doesn't matter when you're on the radio, does it? Or the wireless, as they used to call it. I'm prompted wittily to say yeah. your your paintings and your stories scare the pants off people. But talk about your horror stories first, if we may, please. Yeah. No, no, before we do that, I know ah, I know I know why you've got no trousers on. Why have I got no trousers? Because you have probably just returned from a five-mile run and an hour-long workout at the boxing gym. <laughs> no, it's not. It's got paint over. I've been painting in my shed and I've got paint on them, so I took them off, love. Oh, but you're, you, I said in the intro, you're a fitness fanatic. I wouldn't say I'm a fanatic, but I do realise that my you know, age catches up with you. And as the dancers say, uh, if you use it, you use it or lose it. And... Uh, as they say, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, so I try to use it as often as possible. <laughs> I've lost it, love. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about muscles, is what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, me too. Me too. Yes. If, if yes, I, yes, yes. If I ever had it. Okay, so start from question one again, Carl. Get back on track immediately. 
<clears throat> so these two bestsellers you've written. You do books- know that if you can't get back on track, I will try and take it off track every time. You do know that. <laughs> yes, and me not as a skilled interviewer. I will fall for everything <laughs> hook, line and sinker, of course. Um, let's, uh, let's try and get it back on track a second time <laughs> in the first yeah. five minutes. Um, uh, well, I touch my bare legs. <laughs> yeah. These two best-selling books of horror short stories the second one the second one you wrote during lockdown yes the two together amount to 30 ghostly ghoulish and gory tales and they're brutal and uncompromising stories yes they are yeah they're not what you'd expect from a cuddly family entertainer no do you want me to tell you why question two (laughs) question two Oh, I, I didn't know that was a question. You were just statement there. That wasn't a question. That wasn't a, you wouldn't go Parkinson and then just go statement and go, yes, that's right, Parkinson. Yes. You need a question at the end of the question. At least go up and with your, your voice and go, they're, you know, they're very scary. But you didn't do that. You just said it straight. If you go up at the end, up in an inflection, I know it's a question. Otherwise, it's a statement. When does the question start? I don't know. Shall I tell you about my books? Yes, please. Yes, please. Yeah. Do you want me to tell you how it all came about, about the, about, about the horror, why I've got such a love of horror? That's probably the best way to do it, isn't it, really? If, if you'd like to say that, yes, please. Well, Thank I think... Making me look silly in front of my, my, my listener. <laughs> We've known each other for over 30 years and look where we are. I've got no pants on and you're sitting there with green headphones on, I dare say. So basically, I grew up in a place called Grays in Essex, as you know, um, and I lived near a place called Perfleet and um, it was one of my first jobs at my dream factory in Perfleet in Essex. And one of my first books I read when I was a kid, I read stuff like Lord of the Flies. I loved Lord of the Flies, it was a great book. Um, I also read, uh, I had read, you know, um, real eclectic mix of stuff that I used to like reading. I remember reading Donovan's Brain, a book called Donovan's Brain, mm. um, which was, do you remember do you remember that book at all? I think they made it into a film as well. It was a movie, yes. Um, about, obviously about a bloke that had his brain removed and it was still functioning after it was in a jar and it started to take control of other people's minds is what it was all about. But Lord of the Flies, but I also read Dracula when I was about, must have been about nine, ten years old, something like that. Mm. And in the book, I was fascinated by it because um, basically uh, Dracula comes over from Transylvania on a boat called the Demeter. Uh, he lands in, uh, in Whitby and then um, he travels down to London. Now, in, in, those, in that book, um, which is written about 1896, if I remember correctly, something mm-hmm. like that. Yes. Um, he travels down to London. Now, the part of London they talk about uh, a lot, and he buys a place called the Carfax Estate, but it isn't in London, it's actually in Perfleet. But in those days, which is on the outskirts of London, uh, that's where he bought this Carfax Estate. And I was fascinated that they that, that mentioned Perfleet. This is where I live, it's a couple of miles from where I was. Mm-hmm. So as a kid, I used to go and go around Perfleet on my chopper bike, uh, and I found the place called the Carfax Estate, which was um, a mental asylum then. Uh, it's, all, it's all gone now. It's a, it's a council estate now. Mm-hmm. But at the time, there was a, this, um, this, uh, this mental hospital there. And I used to run around as a kid and take a couple of mates down there. And we shout out, you know, oh, Dracula. Well, we try and get the ghost of Dracula. We had a Ouija board. I was in the Cubs and Scouts at the time. We had a big Ouija board and we tried to contact 
Dracula. Obviously, he was just a fictional <laughs> character. We did contact someone called Malcolm, but I think it was my mate Kevin that was just pushing it around. <laughs> but, uh, but we used to do Bob a Job Week, and um, in those days, I didn't know what a Ouija board was. And we'd knock on people's doors and go, Bob a Job, and they just go and like, clean their car for, for a Bob, for a shilling. Mm. Uh, and sometimes we say, we're having a raffle next week, or we're having a jumble sale, we've got anything you want to give. And somebody gave us this Ouija board. And so me and Kev, we tried to contact Dracula, um, but he, he never... You know, he never came through, sadly. And then... Sorry, is that because he's a he's a, a fictional character, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I think it was because he was fictional, but I was hoping that somebody might have come through, you know, but he obviously didn't. Uh, it was more than I could have hoped for that it was going to happen. But Malcolm came through, but he wasn't that interesting. Anyway, I got run over when I was 13. Mm. Right, I was on the first day of my paper round, and this is where it really started. Um, you know, I, I said I had the Dracula uh, bug at a very young age, 13, getting run over. And uh, it was a very bad break. And so I was in hospital. For, I lost a, a year of school. I was in hospital. I was in traction. And they didn't, it didn't work at all. It was just under my hip, uh, the, the break. It was really, you know, it shattered the bone there. And they put me in plaster. There was a whole, you know, whole uh, list of events that, that sent me a little bit weird, I think, uh, mm. as I got older. Um, I remember they put me in, in plaster. I was in this room with all these old men at the time um, in Orsett Hospital in Essex. And I, when they put me in plaster, it was such a bad break. The plaster went from my ankle all the way up my, my leg and then around my waist, up my chest as well, and under my armpits because it was actually on the hip. And then the way I could do it was to support the hip, was to, to you know, encase the whole body in plaster. Mm. So I couldn't bend over. I couldn't use a toilet. I couldn't do anything. I had to use a bedpan. And I remember that they gave me a few lessons on, on how to use crutches. But I didn't, I didn't, you know, it wasn't a pleasant experience. The very first day they put the plaster on me, they take me down to this plastering room. And there's a big wooden cutout of a, of a human body there, like, a, like it's something that's been a murder victim, but it had been cut out in this human shape. And then there's a hole in the in the in the part of where your um, you know privates would be on this wooden cutout. So I'm struck naked now. I'm 13 years old, and they lay me on this wooden cutout, this human body. And I'm thinking, what's this too old for? Didn't know what it was all about. And then they say we've got a load of student nurses coming in today, and they're going to um, you know uh, have a bit of an experience there. So all these young girls come in, about 18, 19 year old student nurses, and I'm 13 years old, struck naked on this board. And I start crying, and they're going, oh, look at him, poor little bugger. Oh, look at him. And the more they were giving me the sympathy, the more I was crying. And it was, it was terrible. Then I, I wondered what the hole around the, around the bottom area was for, and then they shoved this great big broom handle through it. Right, so I'm laying there. It looked like some sort of sacrificial thing going on. With a great big, it was like the Wicker Man. They had this great big broom handle where my winkle was, right? And the, what, the, what they did, the, the, the bloke that was plastering, he, he had these rubber gloves on. He, he got my winkle and he pulled it around the wooden stick thing so that he didn't get covered in plaster. And so, so they're all laughing. I'm crying even more. And it was something like a horror film. You wouldn't do that to kids nowadays. So, of course, they plastered me all, and that's it. Then they take me back up, and I've got nothing that fits me now because I've got giant, one leg is giant, and it's all around my waist, and it was horrible. So then my mum and dad brought me some of my dad's pyjamas, drawstring pyjamas. 
So that was great. I've got my drawstring pyjamas on. I've got my dad's ones out. And I could learn how to use the crutches. There is a point for this story leading to the horror, right? So I've got these pyjamas on. And the, the, in those days, it was quite a new hospital. And so everything was glass. Everywhere was glass. There was no walls. It was all glass. You could see out on the car park. I was on, like, the fourth floor. And so I was showing my mum and dad out. I was using the crutches. And I saw them off at, at the end of the corridor. And I said, I'm going to get to the window. I can see you by the car park. And I'll get as quick as quick as I can. So, of course, I'm running, or what you call running, on my crutches as fast mm-hmm. as I could. Bang, 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 bang. It was like one floor of the cuckoo's nest. I get to the window, and I've got my dad's pyjamas, the drawstring pyjamas. And I'm standing there waving at the window by the car park. And it's quite a late evening. And it's getting dark. So there was more light in the, in the hospital than there was in the car park. And so people are looking up and they're all pointing. And I didn't know, as I've gone such, you know, hell for leather and my dad's pyjamas around my big fat waist where my, my plaster was, the drawstring is loosened. And, the, and as I'm standing by the window, I can't feel them, but the pyjamas have dropped to the floor. And I can't wear pants with this great big fat plaster on either. So I'm waving at the window, 13-year-old, great big fat leg with plaster on, little skinny leg, and a little winkle hanging out, and my bum hanging out the back. And everybody's waving and looking and pointing. I think, what they're pointing at? And then up near the people that are visiting behind me, visiting the other people in the hospital, all laughing. So I've got one bum cheek hanging out, and everybody in the car park can see my winkle, and I can't bend over to pull them up. I can't, so I'll start crying again. So, of course, this lady behind me goes, oh, poor little bugger, like that. We go for that old rig and roll again. She pulls them up. This is why I'm so affected, Carl. This is what's happening to me. That's that, right? <laughs> I, go, I go home, eventually I go home, right, uh, and I'm allowed to go home, but I cannot use stairs because I can't because there's no bend in the leg, there's no bend in my back, and I can't risk go, for going upstairs in this heavy plaster with crutches in case I fall down them. So for the next three or four months, I'm allowed to live in the living room. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually stay in the living room for the next three months, and I'm, I'm sleeping on the settee. Uh, and of course, in those days, everybody goes to bed, you know, about 10 o'clock, I suppose, uh, and they'd left me to it. Um, and my mum used to collect antique dolls, these uh, porcelain dolls with glass eyes. Hmm. So, um, and I would lay there, they'd go to bed about 10 o'clock. My two older sisters and my younger brother would be in bed before then. And I'd just lay there watching any program that came on. Normally, not, there's only three channels then. The, the telly would shut off about one o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. but invariably most nights, normally BBC Two would have it on than any of the other channels. They would have a late night horror film, mm-hmm. particularly Friday and Saturday nights. Occasionally you get other stuff, and I would sit there because I had no, you know, I didn't no curfew and went out to go to sleep because I was all in bed. I would watch, sit and watch every horror film going, and they used to petrify me, and I'd become numb to it. And my mum had all these. These, these porcelain dolls around the house. And they're proper antique. They weren't reproductions. They were the real, real deal. And she used to say, and my mum was a bit cranky as well, she used to say there was a possessed, uh, one of them was possessed, had the soul of a little girl in it. And that used to, oh, my God. And I've been looking at this one in particular. <laughs> I was looking at now. And at 13 years old, I believed all this stuff. I remember watching stuff like Blood on Satan's Claw. Do you remember yeah, that one? Yeah. It was also, in those days, there was a lot of nudity in those films. It was very titill- titillating in those mm. days. It right, and it's 13. My mum and dad knew I was watching that because oh, you're not watching that because I'd gone to bed, so there was a lot of nudity. Oh, it's nudity in there, uh, mm. and it's very weird as a 13 not to have any censorship on it. And they were all 18s, what they were called 18 in those days. Mm-hmm. X films, what they were called. X, that's what it wasn't 18, it was an X. And I used to be quite excited about watching X films, and no one knows about it, but they used to give me nightmares. 
And eventually, um, I became numb to the horror. And one of my favourites of those days was uh, Plague of the Zombies. The old Hammer films were the ones that really got me into it. And so I'd sit, I had my Dracula book as well, all the Frankenstein ones, and uh, there were so many films derivative of that. And then the, the zombies started coming out in those days. You know, people think zombies are a new thing. No, no, they weren't. Plague of the Zombies, 1966. Uh, was just one of the best zombie films ever made. It was set in a tin mine in Cornwall, and I and I believed it. I'd been to Cornwall a few times. I thought, oh, this is fantastic. I absolutely loved it. And then after about three or four months, I had to have the plaster taken off. So I go back to the hospital, uh, and bear in mind, so my, my arms are quite strong now, and my left leg is quite strong, but there's no muscle. There's a lot of muscle wastage on the right leg that's been covered in plaster. And what they do, they cut it off with like a circular saw, but it's not a saw, it's just a piece of, like a, in the shape of a circular, but just vibrates. So it doesn't actually spin, it just vibrates and it cuts into the plaster. And of course, so I've got my whole midriff from my chest down to my waist and my whole right leg has been cut off from sunlight and been cut off from the air. And it used to itch a lot and I used to have a knitting needle that they shoved down in places just to get the scratching. And of course, this bloke cuts it off and as he cut, cuts it off, right, he stepped back and went, whoa, like that. As he looked at it, I thought, what's going on? What is it? What is it? Right? And my leg and my chest and my back had been cut off from oxygen, right? It'd been cut off from the sunlight, from any sort of light at all. Mm -hmm. I knew there was going to be dry skin on there, right? But it was weird, Cole. It had it got this cake of, of dry skin all over it, right? I looked like a leper, but it looked, it was all this flaking skin. It looked like I was covered in Jacob's cream crackers, right? That's what it was like. You could peel it off like crackers. It was that deep, the skin, right? Not only was that, it was very pale. It had all gone white. It was like albino. Half of me was albino, right? But the worst thing was... It's worse. It's worse. Worse than that. The worst thing was... it's Now, I hadn't reached puberty at this point, right? But I grew hair. in these places that were covered... It was, I don't just mean a little bit of hair. When I bum fluff, I'm talking spider legs hair, right? I had these thick spider legs all over my legs and all over my chest and my belly where it'd been cut off from the light. And it looked like cactus everywhere on my legs. Oh, oh my God, what is it? And he stepped back, he went, oh, it looked like the fly. I was like, honestly, I was like Vincent Price in the fly. It was like, you know, um, uh, you know when uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum did it, right? Yes. As Brundle fly, when <laughs> Arthur returns into the fly, that's what it was like. Instead of my arm and my head, it was my chest and my leg had turned into the fly. <laughs> it was the most disgusting thing you've ever seen on a 13-year-old, right? And I was so conscious of it, and that was it. That was my introduction into horror. My body was a horror film, and that was it. I accepted it, and I loved it, and I've loved it ever since. Does that explain where all this comes from now? Pretty comprehensively, yes, I must say. <laughs> 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 okay, it's late, folks. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I went off on one then, but it's, that's all one hundred percent true. All of that is actually happened. That's fascinating because uh, the mental image that you conjure up uh, yeah. actually does reflect your descriptive power in your short stories. Because immediately, when you talked about the the, the, the dried skin, I was thinking, oh, yeah. Im Boris Karloff as Imhotep in the Mummy. Yeah, and then you then you mentioned the tufts of of, of spidery head. I was thinking of a werewolf. Yep, oh, it's all wow. there. Yeah, it's, it's there. it speaks volumes. And, and you saw with this this pallid wizened leg on one side. Well, with pallid wizened yeah. leg in the middle, and this pallid wizened <laughs> leg on the other side as well as this, this well formed muscular 
Left leg. Have you seen? How long did it? Okay, just to, to digress for a moment, out of interest. How long did it take you to get full um, perambulatory restoration? You know, move properly and and for your skin to settle down. Well, the skin was, was very weird. I got in the bath straight away, and most of the skin fell off. Right, but most of it came washed it off. It took a few weeks for it all to, all to come off. Mm. Um, but most of the skin fell off it just washing it off it was just dead skin mm. but the hair stayed there for about, about six weeks and they just started I didn't shave it on nothing because my mum wouldn't let me shave at that point um, because I remember when I was three I saw my dad this, I've got a scar under my chin here mm. and when I was three years old I, I didn't know I don't remember it but I do um, I remember my mum screaming but I do have a scar under there and I'd watched my dad shaving when I was three and apparently I, I know my dad got run into trouble for it um, I, apparently I shaved when I was three years old. I got hold of his razor and I had a shave with it. I just sort of copied him. And I came down and stood, but you know, that, that, that part of your skin, especially a three-year-old, I don't remember the pain. If there mm. was pain, I don't remember it. Mm. But I remember walking down the stairs and my mum screaming and there was blood everywhere. It looked like I cut my throat. Uh, it, it, it just, and it was a three-year-old. So can you imagine a three-year-old walking down the stairs with blood from its neck all the way down his stomach, right? And that's what I was. That was that was me. And my mum still tells me, well, she doesn't anymore, but she used to tell me about it. That was the worst moment of her life, seeing me with my, it looked like I had my throat slit and I was three years old and then my dad really got it in the neck. Uh, as, as did you at the chin. That sort of informs a great deal about your interest in horror, why you pursue uh, a writing career as a horror author. Um, yeah. And I, I guess... You, you branched off into comedy as, as the perfect antidote to uh, being obsessed with horror, I'm guessing. Yeah. Do, you know, do you know what the weird feeling is? That there's a whole, um, uh, what's the word? It dovetails into it. Horror and, and stand-up for me going on stage dovetails together because it's the same feeling, right? And the feel, I like being scared. Mm. I, like, I don't like watching a horror film that doesn't scare me. If it's, it's something that well, doesn't make me emote in any way, shape or form, I like a film that's really going to grab me by the pit of my stomach and turn it inside out, regardless whether it be for gore reasons or for jump reasons, for storyline, whatever it is. And I get the same feeling on a roller coaster. I like a really good roller coaster. I like a great horror film. I like reading a good horror book. And I also like going on stage because it scares me. It's the same principle. I get scared going on stage. I get very nervous. But I enjoy the nerves. They're not a negative thing for me. Getting scared isn't a bad thing, but getting scared is really good. I love that feeling. It makes me know I'm alive when I'm mm. scared. Mm. That's fascinating. Isn't it? A lot of people are frightened by the blank page. I've spoken to a lot of people who say, well, I don't know yeah. how you write, because you stare at a blank sheet of paper, and, and it's, it's a horrifying experience because thinking you've got to fill it with something. And I've always yeah. said that the blank sheet of paper is, is my best friend because I know it's going to be filled with at least something. Uh, and I'm yeah. guessing you approach your writing in the same way. Well, what happened with the writing, uh, and, uh, and you'll know a lot of this yourself anyway, because you are um, hugely influ influential in my writing, is uh, I... I'd been doing a course with the Open University on geoscience, as you know, and I could take extra modules on different subjects. And I decided to do one on photography. I did one on creative writing and I enjoyed it a lot. And then I did advanced creative writing, which meant I started doing screenplays and, and, and stage plays and stuff like that. Um, 
and working on dialogue and, and all sorts of stuff that I hadn't ever thought about. Uh, but they worked with the program that I did, the module that I did, it teaches you to free write more than anything. And they said every single day you have to put pen to paper and write 500 words. Doesn't matter what it is, just write anything. If you can't think of anything to write, write, I can't think of anything to write, and then see what happens. And the tutor would give us um, like three or four words as a title and say, I want 500 words on that subject there. It can be, it could be a story, it could be anything, a piece of prose, whatever you, want to, whatever you want to put down. These are the three words, could be, I bought a new hat. Give me 500 words and I bought a new hat. Um, and so I would, and I quite enjoyed the, the, uh, the, the challenge of that. And I would then take it in to be marked. And then he would put a circle around bits that were good and put a line through bits that we thought weren't, weren't very good. He'd go, this is really good. This is interesting. That thought there, that thought there. It doesn't go with that, but that's not like that. And a lot of it was, was humorous, uh, even if I dare say funny. And I used to like writing that stuff. But he used to say to me, the, the, the funny stuff is obvious. You know, it's obvious you can do that because that's what you've done all your life. But What's really interesting is when you go dark, when you leave the humour behind and you start writing something that isn't at all funny, it's really quite scary and dark. That's where I find it the most interesting. I want you to concentrate on that. Yeah. Give me a story that, that's based on and then you pick a, 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 a sentence out and go, give me a story on that sentence you've done there. Okay, so I do that. And then give me a sentence, give me a story on that sentence there. And, uh, and this was um, what I start using my coursework with. And they became short stories. And as you know, what happened then is I sent some of them to you for um, your take on it and for your help on uh, just general storytelling. What do you think of it? Mm -hmm. And then um, you sent them to a publisher who then contacted me and said, have you got any more of these? And I said, yeah. And he said, if they're any good, then I'll publish them. And um, that was it. The rest is history, as they say. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, hugely influential uh, in your part. Well, thank you for that. But I think what was important was the the discipline that that university course, that degree course taught you of yeah. you've got to write 500 words. It's Terry Pratchett's great regime was Terry Pratchett always said 500 words a day, every day, no excuses. And he was yeah. immensely disciplined, which is why he was a great one of the greatest writers this country's ever produced in the fantasy genre era. One of the, probably one of the best writers we've produced yeah. lately. But it's that discipline. You say, okay, blank page, write stuff, which yeah. leads me to this. You've written about 30 different short stories across the two well, volumes. I've, I've, done, I've done what I'm working on, the third book, which we'll come to that later on, but I'm on the mm. third, so now I'm up to about 40, 45 mm. now. Gee whiz. And, um, I, I'm not scared, of, as you say, I'm not scared uh, of the blank page, and I quite enjoy the challenge of that. And I, I think I write... Um, uh, in a different way to a lot of, I don't know, I don't know how a lot of other writers do it. I don't know how they do it. But for me, I work from a title first, I get a title, and then I like the sound of that. And I think, I think it goes back um, to the uh, the way the, the, the Open University taught me to do it, where they give you a sentence and write off the back of that. And that's mm. the, the format that I use, get a title and then work it out. And invariably, I, and then I try and take notes. Uh, I've got an idea of a story. I'll put down a few um, bullet points. I'm going to work off that. And then invariably, I throw them out the window, start again. Well, I don't even start again. As it goes along, um, those bullet points don't mean anything because I thought it was something even better than that. Uh -huh. I don't have an ending in sight normally. So occasionally I do. I've had a couple of dreams where I've dreamt a story <clears throat> uh, where I've just woke up in the night, had my notepad by the bed, and and then gone, right, that's it. And it's, it's just formed itself like a, a whole dream has just come out. But generally speaking, I don't have a problem um, 
in uh, in, in a blank page at all. I absolutely love it. It's beautiful, isn't it? Sometimes I read it. What happens is, if I had to get a bit scared and I had to go, oh, no, I can't think of nothing, right? I read some of the ones I've done before. I go, I was in exactly the same position with that story there. I had no idea what to do, but look what came out. So you can do that. And then, I, then, I, then once I read up one of my old stories, it will give me the impetus to do a new one again. I think it's fascinating because as a writer, uh, once you're into your story, you can't wait to go back to it the next day because you yeah. want to know what happens next. Yeah, absolutely. I do. Yeah. And sometimes I can't wait to get to the end and go, what's going to happen at the end? What's going to happen at the end? And then you'll have a go, oh, it's there. It, it forms itself. Short stories. I mean, your stories are ghostly. They're grim and they're grisly. But by writing short stories, you gobble up an awful lot of good original ideas. Do you ever think to yourself, well, hang on, hold back on this one, because this will be a fully formed novel. Or do you think my lifestyle is so busy, I'd rather get my story down and, and have it as a short story? No, I have got a couple of ideas that I've held back for that. But generally speaking, I go, no, um, anything that can be a novel can be a short story. That's why I look at it. And mm. it can be just as good for me. And I'd rather not pad it out. It's like a joke. It's, for my stories, they're like a joke. And you've read a lot of my stories, as you know. So it starts off, we've got a start, a middle and an end. And I don't like, um, I love reading, reading short stories, generally, whether horror, whatever basic they're on. Uh, but what I don't like is when they're left open-ended. When, when an author says, yes, I've left it open then, let the, let the reader decide what happens at the end. Mm. No, I've paid 15 quid for this book. You tell me what happens in the end. I want to know what happens in the end. I don't want to be left hanging because I don't know if the man is he really dead? Is he alive? Is he a ghost? Is he not a ghost? What's happened? Did he murder or did he not murder? Tell me. Tell me. That's what I want to know. So all of my stories, you know exactly what, what's happened. There's a the start, the middle, and each story, I like to think, has a punchline at the end. You go, oh, I, didn't. I like to do it when you don't see the end coming as well. I like that one when it takes you by surprise. Um, there was a, a, when I was a kid, there was a, Stuff on telly, you remember the Sexton Blake, do you remember mm. Sexton Blake? Yeah, um, and then there was the uh, um, uh, Hitchcock stuff. The Alfred Hitchcock uh, Theatre presents yes. that he had short stories on there. Mm-hmm. There was always that type of show that that used to bring me in as a, as a kid. And I go, oh, I love these short stories. Well, you didn't have to wait next week to see what happened at the end. Mm-hmm. I'm no good on a cliffhanger. I love to binge stuff, and this is why I like to give a reader. A story that that's got an end to it. There you go, and you feel the satisfaction. The, I like to be satisfied at the end of reading a book, and I want the reader that's reading mine to be satisfied that they know what the end of the story is. So, when you're sitting on the loo, you can start one of your stories and and finish it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and probably it, it is so scary and horrific, it has the desired effect. Well, absolutely. If you you're constipated, this will help you all the way, <laughs> and and you can do it in one sitting as well. One story, one sitting. Your original baptism of horror movies was you yeah. sit in the living room, plastered, watching. Yeah. A, I would imagine uh, those universal black and white, um, universal Carl Lemley, James Whale horror movies. James Whale, yeah, yeah. Th- th- those classics. And also you mentioned that the Hammer horrors, and they were, yeah. they, as you say, they were very, very titillating. Lovely actresses like Veronica Coulson, who was one of my favourites, but a bunch of others like Madeline Smith. One of my favourites was uh, uh, Countess Dracula. Do you remember who was in Countess Dracula? Oh, was it Ingrid Pitt? Ingrid Pitt. Ingrid, I used to fancy Ingrid Pitt, something chronic, right? And I actually met her in the West End when I was doing a play. And I was actually, I was actually I met her in the street. I went, oh my God, this is Ingrid Pitt. 
And uh, and I had a, the script of the of the play I was doing at the time, and she signed the script for it. It was amazing. I was just like, oh my god, I'm in love with Ingrid Pitt. It was incredible. Wow. I think probably as adolescent young men, we were in love with all of those Hammer horror starlets, weren't we? Yeah. When was your first cinematic horror experience? And let me preface this because I remember mine vividly. It was a Sunday double bill at the Kensal Rise Odeon. And it was George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, double wow. bill, double bill with the Witchfinder General. Okay, was that back in nineteen sixty nine then, something like that? I guess it must have been yes, because it was the first time I could actually get in to an X rated double bill. Well, I, I couldn't get into it. I, I looked so young, even when I was eighteen, I couldn't get in at the time. But I didn't get to see an X rated. I was like twenty one at the time. But which Vincent Price was one of my favourite favourite horror film actors of all time. When you talk about Dr. Fives, you know, the bumble Dr. Fives, the, the return of uh, Dr. Fives rises again, yeah. uh, Witchfinder General. Mm-hmm. There was all the stuff from, you know, the Salem Witch Trial films that were coming out that were quite uh, popular at that period of time as well. The Wicker Man with... Uh, Edward Woodward. Edward Woodward, which is my favourite joke. You know, if Edward Woodward had no D's in his name, he'd be called Ewa Woo right? <laughs> but that was just the witch finder John, which they remade it a little while ago with Nicolas Cage. It had no guts to it at all. It had no, it didn't have any presence, no atmosphere. I don't know if you saw him at all, but if you get, if anybody's interested in, in uh, one of the best films of the, I think about 1970, I reckon it was made, Christopher Lee as well who was just sensational. It was really spooky. And they took all of the atmosphere away from it. I love Nicolas Cage, but that film in particular, they remade. They shouldn't have done it like that. But yeah, I think if we're going back to your original question, my first horror film then, uh, I think must have been really, if I'm really honest, I think it was The Exorcist, the, the movie. We're talking about at the cinema, yes. right? And even now, I still can't watch it. I still cannot watch it, Cole. It petrifies the life out of me. Now I, I cannot. I, it'll, it'll, it'll keep me awake for days and days and days. And I, I think that it was a work of genius that movie. Um, and the writing itself, you know, William Peter Blatty, just everything about it mm. is just phenomenal. It was well before its time. Uh, and the actress, who was the girl who played the played the played Reagan? Yeah, Linda Blair. Linda Blair, as a, as a kid, she was about fourteen when she made that. She was incredible. The whole performance. Everything about it, it still holds up 50 years later and it just scares the living daylights out of me. But, you know, it wasn't just horror. I loved, um, I remember uh, going to see, uh, I think it's uh, 20,000 Leagues between, Beneath the Sea was, you know, that was the age, that was um, a you at the time. You know, so I would go and see, that's the sort of stuff I used to go and watch a lot. Any sci-fi, Jules Verne stuff, I used to love all of that. Um, but, yeah, I have a big, wide, eclectic mix of stuff that I love. Oddly enough, the film you mentioned, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, 1956, Walt Disney with Kirk yeah. Douglas. And uh, and uh, Peter Laurie. Peter Laurie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was the precursor, really, of the steampunk image. It was right. Harper Goff's magnificent design of the Nautilus. And yeah. the, the interiors of the Nautilus is a kind of a nuclear-reacted powered submarine um, yeah. with all that Victorian flair and loveliness. That really was the, the, the genesis of, of steampunk as we know it today. So I have a great affection for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I also love, while you're on this subject here, was uh, Sinbad movies. Sinbad, The Eye of the Tiger, Seven Voyage of Sinbad, all this sort of stuff. Uh, Jason and the Golden Fleece. What? 
How could you not? There's not a better film out there. Jason the Golden Fleece, right? And what was great about that was Ray Harryhausen took over the the um, the mantle of doing stop motion movies then, uh, and he was just an absolute genius. And then I got the lucky, I, I had the lucky experience of the Jameson Tonight on Sky when the Sky first started about thirty years ago. It must have been now. Jameson, Derek Jameson had a show, a chat show called Jameson Tonight, and I was a regular on it. And one night they booked Ray Harryhausen, right? Oh. And I sat on the couch with Ray Harryhausen talking about how much of an impact he had on my life as a kid. And I just sat there in awe looking at him. It was like, you know, if you know Elvis, they sit next to Elvis. For me, that's what it was like. I went, oh my God, this is Ray Harryhausen. And then, even better, go forward 20, 25 years. You and I, this is a great story. This is, if anybody knows this sort of era of stuff, they had a Ray Harryhausen exhibition. I think it was a Barbican we went to see it, if I remember rightly. No, I tell you, that was, that was at the, actually, it was at Tate, wasn't it? Or no, it was Tate, Tate Modern. Tate Modern, it was that, that was it, yeah. And you and I were queuing up, and then just at the same time we were going in, I don't know if you remember this. I do. The amazing, incredible film director, John Landis, was in front of us, who did American Werewolf in London, one of the movies he's done, that's just one, yeah. apart from uh, Blues Brothers and God, all the sorts of stuff John Landis did. Michael Jackson's thriller video as well, which also starred Vincent Price, as you know, on the voiceover. But John Landis is in front of us, and, and, and we were both in awe. I'm like, this is John Landis. And what's amazing is most people wouldn't know a director if it bit him on the bum. But you and I both, she's John Landis in front of us here. Yeah. And so we followed him about with like a couple of school kids and eventually we stopped at the same uh, uh, same um, exhibit. model yes. Yes, exhibit there. And I had to say to her, excuse me, John Landis, um, you don't know me, but uh, I'm just a huge fan of your work. And the grin that came up onto his face was incredible, wasn't it? Yeah. And that was all this, just shook his hand, said I'm a huge fan, he walked away. It was one of the best days of my life ever. Isn't it yeah. incredible? Yeah, I remember it vividly. Absolutely yeah. vividly. I'm also minded to think that the Barbican exhibition that you're thinking of was that magnificent sci-fi collection was put together by one of the founders of Microsoft, uh, Paul Allen. Of course it was, yes. Which was fantastic because they had... The paintings, the artwork was incredible there. And also the props that he had. He had the submarine from the Fantastic Voyage, the Racco yeah. Welsh film, bunch of star of star trek stuff he had one of the from Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea one of the underwater spear guns yeah. that the divers had and i thought oh well you know if you've got paul allen's money yeah i'd have that kind of a collection really i mean you've got a horror collection of figurines and artifacts i collect a lot of stuff planet of the apes was a huge thing for me as well uh, the first one, 1966, I think it was, Charlton Heston. I don't know why. It was, it was based on a, on a book by a French book called Pierre Boulle. Uh And I just, I don't know why, it captured my imagination in 1966. And it, but in those days, that's when it was released. So in, I was only five when it was released. So it didn't come on telly until about 1971, five, six years later. So I was like 11, 10 or 11 when that first came out. And it blew me away. And then each year, they, they kept getting, you know, bringing them out. But I think they made five movies at that point then, mm. and uh, over the next 10 years. Uh, and I was obsessed with it. And, I started, and then Ham, uh, Marvel used to bring out um, a comic at the time called Dracula Lives, mm -hmm. which was, and I collected those um, yeah, as I've still got every episode, if you can call them episodes, but every edition. 
every edition of that in my garage still. And then they bought one up on April Planet of the Apes and I got every edition of that. And then they combined the two comics and called Planet of the Apes, Dracula Lives and Planet of the Apes. I think they just the, uh, the readership was going down. So they incorporated the two comics then. So yeah, I do have a huge collection of, of kids stuff, you want to call that. But to me, they're, they're priceless again. They're just priceless to me. They, they are physically priceless as well, along with your collection, I think, of the Hammer House of Horror magazines. Yes, I do. Yeah, it's called House of Hammer, that is. Mm. Yeah, I've got every single one of those. And uh, and they're, they're all pristine as well, though. I don't, it's ridiculous. You get, you get them, put them in a plastic bag, don't look at them again. You know, you get the finger grease all over them. What's the point of having them? It's ridiculous. I should get them out and read them every night. That's what I should do, because they're part of an era that's long gone now. Because the artwork on it is fantastic. Mm. So they've just got taken to it. Some, whoever the artist was on these was just incredible. Oh, most certainly. I don't, I'll come to artwork a bit later on, if I may, with our chat. The, um, the collections that you predominantly have got, and I to a lesser extent have, they're actually very highly prized because you try buying that stuff now on eBay or in, yeah. or in um, an auction, they're, they're, they're very, very expensive. Actually, imagine, I'm not looked to be honest, but I think that the problem is, is most people don't have a full collection. Most people have two or three, you know, uh, two or three of the comics. They won't have 165 of them. Mm. They won't have that, you know. Um, so to buy the collection is, is would be astronomical. So they're selling each each one for maybe 10, 15 quid or something. So then you've got, that's when it gets really pricey, when you buy the collection. Mm. Uh, so, if, you know, touch wood, I've still got mine, and I, I look after them well. What I wish I'd, what I'd collect, kept when i collected them joe are the aurora plastic kits of the oh, universal yeah. monsters oh, i had those i had the glow in the dark ones when i was a kid and sadly I, they, they they went by the way as i grew up somewhere i don't know where but i, I, I regret severely not keeping them that's why i regret maturity to a certain extent because it, it comes to a point where you think well i'm a teenager i'm too old for boris as the mummy and, and boris yeah. as frankenstein's monster and now you you can't you've got to give limbs yeah. <laughs> to buy this stuff yeah no it's so expensive now but I, I i love i still love it all i do you know i'm obsessed with being a kid still i'm still i mean i've never grown up and i never will grow up and please god neither of us ever do uh I prompted a memory i remember reading that paul allen the aforementioned one of the founders of microsoft actually bought for his collection of sci-fi and horror the original manuscript that bram yeah. stoker wrote for dracula yeah. Dracula. No. Well, I bet he must have paid a fortune. Absolutely. But then, of course, when you're Paul Allen, uh, God yeah. rest his soul, as yeah. a founder of Microsoft, you can afford that kind of stuff, as was witnessed by the exhibition we saw at the Barbie. I love sci-fi stuff. And Neil Gaiman, I absolutely love Neil Gaiman. The Sandman in particular was something that I, that I think is a phenomenal piece of work. He did one, uh, he did, what was the one he did with Terry Pratchett? He wrote with him. Um, uh, before Terry Good died. Omens. Good Omens. Now, that for me, I, I don't know. I, I, it didn't work for me so much. You know, I like it. It's good. But for me, I, I like Terry Pratchett on his own. I like Neil Gaiman on his own. I think well, they tried to, to marry their styles together. And somewhere along the way, it, I don't know, maybe I'm totally wrong. I'm being, uh, and there'll be purists out there that go, oh, no, it's fantastic still. But for me, I'd, I'd rather keep them separate in, in their writings. Um, and I love The Sandman. I got the chance this year to do a voiceover, The Sandman Part 2, which is on Audible. And last year, it was apparently the biggest bestseller on Audible in on the New York Times was The Sandman. 
Wow. Uh, and it is a great piece of writing, though. It is amazing. It's a phenomenal... It's loads of short stories put together in some linear form to make a, a whole picture of everything else. But the stories themselves work on their own, and they're just some great pieces of writing in there that make you go, oh, wow, this is, this is mm. genius. Mm. And I've got the chance to do... Um, I've got a phone call this year saying, would I like to take part in Sandman 2 that's coming out later this year? Uh, to play part of uh, of Prinado, the monkey. And I was like, that, yes. And my agent went to me and said, I don't know what the money is. I find out, so I don't care what the money is. Tell them I'll give them money to go and do this. <laughs> so, okay, well, yeah, but I don't think it's going to be a lot. I don't care what the money is. Yes, say yes, please. Don't ask how much the money is, just say yes. So anyway, she said yes, and I got the job. And I went down to do it, and it's been directed by one of my favourite directors that does audible stuff, uh, to straight to radio. And his name is Dirk Maggs. Who also did, he worked with John Landis um, uh, 20 years ago and did the uh, only version of American Werewolf of London with the, uh, uh, the theatrical version of that on the radio. And he, he doesn't do it like a, just an audio book. He does, it's like Max stuff on the radio. He did a lot of Doctor Who stuff as well. Uh, he was a, uh, he, well, he still is. He's just a genius uh, at, at directing. Um, so I, I get to do, the, do this Prinado the Monkey, and he orchestrated. That's all I'm going to say. He was, a, he conducted us. It was like an orchestra. There was like six of us in the, in the studio, all in their own sound booths, and he was in the middle, pacing up and down and pointing at us. It was like he was orchestrated. It was just a, an orchestra, and he was the conductor, and he was bringing us up ver- verbally, loud, softer, and it was just great experience. It was only them for, in there for a day. And one of the other uh, voiceover artists of the day, and that day was uh, Jessica Martin, who I know I hadn't met her before, but I knew her role. She was um, did a lot of variety stuff, and uh, she's a great impressionist. But she also did uh, spam a lot. She, I didn't do it with her when I did it. She did it separately for me. Mm. But I also knew that Jessica was um, uh, was doing some um, comic book work, as I'd seen in uh, in Planet. You and I saw her exhibition in. Or, uh, Orbital Comics in Great Great Newport Street off Leicester Square. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, and so I was I was highly impressed with her stuff then, mm. and and she was there. So and I bought my couple of books down to give to Dirk Maggs that, that, that I'd published, you know, Dead Knobs and Dimsticks. And um, she said, "What are they?" So I told her, and I asked her what she was up to. She said, "I've just been commissioned uh, to write uh, to, to to do some artwork for a new comic book based on Dracula on one of um, Bram Stoker's stories." Uh, and she said it's been commissioned by the the family uh, by of uh, Bram Stoker, and it's his great great grandnephew called Dacre Stoker. Um, unbeknownst to me, she sent my told them about my books. They got hold of my books, and I've been commissioned this year to write uh, my third book of horror stories under the banner of what they're calling the Stokerverse, which is with uh, Dacre Stoker and another great writer called um, Chris McCauley, mm. uh, who's an Irish guy but lives in Canada now. And um, so um, I've just uh, finished that and I'm currently doing the artwork for that one right, right, right now. And that's called Tales of the Stokerverse. Um, it's called Night Scares Tales of the Stokerverse. That's it. That's lovely. And, and so from that, they've pushed me even more. Chris McCordy and Dacre Stoker have pushed me even more than I ever pushed myself on, how would I put it, on being extreme in, in the horror mm-hmm. I've always played it say pulled it back a little bit and they don't want me to they want me to let it out be as gory as you want be as shocking as you want be as scary as you want whereas before I've always turned it back because people are going oh I don't think they'll accept that from me so this third book is um is right out there and some of it even though I've, I've written it I've read it I've gone 
How did that come out of my brain? I don't know. <laughs> Even I'm shocked by it. It's great that you as a performer, and indeed Jessica Martin, who was, a, as you said, a brilliant, is a brilliant impressionist and cabaret performer still, yeah. that you still have these wonderful extra strings to your bows. But they're not just pastimes. They're actually professional products that, that you yeah. and she turn out. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely um, uh, obsessed with writing now, about writing horror. Uh, and I take it very seriously. It's not just a oh, I'm going to get my name out there and, and, and try and write a book and get it published. I could do this for the rest of my life now. I want to continue to do this. And at the moment, I'm, I'm currently looking. <clears throat> uh, I'm selling my house at the moment. I'm currently looking to move to Whitby. Um, and uh, But just to be in that area um, of where Bram Stoker actually wrote a lot of, uh, of Dracula. He went up there and he spent a lot of time. You can actually stay in the place where, where he wrote a lot of stuff now. It's almost um, as if, Joe, I'm thinking that maybe, okay, comedy and entertaining the crowd as a, like an Ellie performer is yeah. your job. Yeah. But your passion is horror. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it is. Uh, it isn't something that I just play with. It's not just a thing to put, to do, to fiddle with and then put it down. I'm always thinking of, even if I've written another story, but I haven't done one for about six weeks. <clears throat> but I have my notebook that I'm always jotting stuff down and ready for when I pick up the book and mm. start, start writing seriously again when time allows uh, because it is something I want to continue doing for the rest of my life. And that's why I want to move to Whitby. I want to move up there. Uh, and as you know, I paint, uh, I, I illustrate the books as well and the painting. And I'm, you know, I've been experimenting with oils this year, as you know, as well. And I'm getting uh, more confident with that. That's the right word to you. I'm getting more confident with oils now. Because what you're doing with your paintings, to move on to that, is that you're actually special? Once again, you're specialising in horror subjects, and you're yeah. you're you're putting together portraits of the great classic horror characters. Yeah, I think they're the they're the ones that mean something to me. They're the ones that I carry about in the back of my head, in the little briefcase in my head, when I I want to be nostalgic about my childhood and actually think about what were the things that made me emote, what were the things that shaped my way my brain thinks now and those horror characters are the ones that stay with me now that, that's it and and if you if you look at those early days of, of James Well and people like that made Frankenstein you know they, they even you know, that people stand on, on the shoulders of giants then but they were standing on the shoulders of giants do you know what I mean James Well those those old universal movies what, what was really interesting about that particularly Dracula that this is, I love this story about the Bella Lugosi version I think it was 1933, if I remember rightly. Mm. Uh, I might be wrong with that, but I think it was 33. They made a Spanish version exactly the same time. So the uh, during the day, the um, the American version was being made, uh, and then the director, the Spanish director of the Spanish market, would watch the shoot during the day. I don't know when he slept, right? But he would watch the shoot during the day, and then uh, and then on the night time. They would copy it. The Spaniards would copy the, the sets and do the same thing. They had the same dialogue. They had the same script, all of that, but it was in Spanish. The Spanish actors, Spanish, everyone was Spanish. Mm. The Spanish crew, the lot. But because the, uh, the director, the Spanish director could speak English as well, he would watch what was going on during the day. And then he would improve it. If you ever get a chance to watch the Spanish version of Dracula, it's a million times better than the American version because he improved just on a daily basis. It would be better if I shot it from this angle. That would be better there. We'd check that angle there, we'd do, we'd do that what he did there, but then after that we'd do the return shot from there, and he changed so much stuff, and it's far superior in so many ways. It's a lot scarier, it's a lot, uh, it's a lot more emotive, it's a lot more atmospheric, 
And that's what they did. And it was a real clever move. I can't remember the director's name, the Spanish guy, but it's a, it's a far improved movie than the original Dracula, even though it was released at exactly the same time as Spain and made at exactly the same time with the same set, same costumes, mm. same dialogue, same uh, everything was about the same, but it's so much better because he learned during the day what improvements he could make. And I said, these people stand on the shoulders of giants. And I remember doing Mastermind and doing a lot of research. <clears throat> and the first time I did Mastermind, it was on vampire movies. Mm. And uh, one of the uh, the early directors, when we say early, very first filmmakers, was uh, a guy called Georges Millet, mm. who, who did one of the very first um, uh, what would you uh, movies when you know, when you got rather than still you just put them together. But he mm. made this movie and it was called uh, Conjuring a Lady at Robert Houdin's. Now a lot of people probably know this might be straight out there, but Houdin was um, uh, a nineteenth century magician and he was uh, the person that Houdini based his name on because he was so impressed with Robert Houdin. All he did was put an eye there and can be you know his real name was Eric Weiss. And uh, he changed his name to Harry Houdini. And all he did was put the eye at the end of Houdin because he was so impressed with with um, uh, with a Robert Houdin. So uh, Jules Millet made this movie. It was called, excuse me, I'd look burped with my excitement. Uh, but <laughs> he made one of the first horror films, I think it was April 96, called Country and the Lady at Robert Houdin's. And basically, uh, it's only about a minute long. And he, he gets a woman sitting in a chair and he he's like, plays a magician. He covers her up with a sheet, takes a sheet away and she's gone. Then he does it again. Then she's a skeleton and then he restores her. And that was um, that was in 1896. And it only lasted a minute. But that was, when I say stand on the shoulders of a giant, he was a giant at that time to make that sort of leap in filmmaking when it was just, you know, oh, there was a, a, a slate that there before then. And that what he, what he found was by accident, he was doing, uh, I think he was, the, I can't remember where he was. He was, uh, I think it was in New York or somewhere like that. And he was filming, um, uh, no, it was outside in Paris. It was outside the Opera House, if I remember rightly. And the camera jammed when he was filming a car. And he didn't realise until he, he got the film developed that the car, the, the, the camera jammed, and then the car jumped from being a normal car into a hearse. And he realised by stop motion of that, he could just make things appear. And that was just literally by accident that he did that. And then he did another one a couple of years later, which is another minute, I think it's only a minute or two, called A Terrible Night. And it was about, um, he was in bed, it was him playing himself in a nightshirt, and this giant insect comes down uh, and he hits it with a broom. It's a giant insect, it's not like a little fly or nothing. It's a giant insect, he kills it with a broom and shoves it in the chamber pot, which is where he'd like a wee and a poo under the bed. <laughs> Um, obviously, he wouldn't get under the bed to do it. He'd get it out quick and then put it under the bed, but he kills it. And for me, that, that was in the late 1890s as well. Mm. And, and that was the predecessor to stuff like The Fly. You know, yeah. if you're doing monster movies, the old, old B movies with giant ants, this was the very first one of those. So to have that, um, you know, that stuff in stock that people could look at and, and realize, hang about, how can I change? How can I improve on this? There's always a giant somewhere, and then there's another giant on top of that, another giant on top of that. And these are the people that change the face of, 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 uh, of cinematography. Yeah, Millet, of course, was was one of the, the great pioneers, wasn't he, particularly of the yeah. horror film. But did he make, didn't he make a film, oh, something to do with a, a castle or something? And it's the first time we saw a flying bat or something. 
Yeah, this was a, in actual fact, this was one of the questions that came up uh, in in my mastermind. It was the very first vampire film, if you want to call it that. It was called The Devil's Manor. It was also called The Haunted Castle. And it's the first time that somebody came out with a crucifix to try and kill the devil uh, and, uh, and and he disappears with a cloud of smoke. And that was only a minute or two long, but I think that was in 1896 as well, in actual fact. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was the very first vampire movie, if you want to call it, even though it was The Devil, but that's classed as the first vampire movie ever. Do you- uh, Georges Millet owned or bought the uh, the Houdin theatre, Robert Houdin theatre, uh, and wasn't practicing magician himself. I know this. So, do you think there's, and uh, knowing your expertise and knowledge of magic, do you yeah. think that there's some correlation between magic and horror? Oh, absolutely. Well, I think, yeah, I think there is now. You can take it both ways. You can take it so it's. It's very mild and it's very uh, user-friendly, as it were. When it when it comes to the dark side of things, that's when it becomes its most interesting. Yeah, and I think uh, films like The Prestige, that they combine that. I think that's so dark. That is such a dark film, but such a brilliant piece of storytelling as well. Yes. You know, Christopher, Nolan, Christopher Nolan is a genius anyway. When you look at his stuff about Batman, all that sort of stuff that he's done, uh, Tenet, all that sort of gear, right? But when you take it back to the prestige, that is storytelling at its best, using the horror of that and using the ego of magicians uh, that, that, that pulls it literally and using people from history as well. Yes. You know, people from history. Yeah, so for me, uh, the prestige is the perfect film. It, 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 it just covers everything. It covers the ego of magicians. It covers the history of magic, uh, the way stuff was developed. It, it covers uh, just a, a wonderful piece of, of history there for me. And it captures uh, uh, the way people, magicians still behave now. Mm, yeah. Okay. And of course, there, there is it's the magic of cinema back in those days, those early pioneering days. It must have been fantastic, mustn't it, to discover yeah. this new stuff? Yeah, imagine, imagine, uh, you know, the, the very first time you actually put a film together and you went, look at, look at what I can do here, and then, and then stretching your imagination. Everything is, a, it, you, I don't know, I'm getting overexcited now. When you look at stuff like Avatar, when when he when he came up with Avatar and and changed the whole format of the way we see movies again using. Um, this technology of the CGI stuff. And then imagine Disney, just Disney alone, you know, just using the animation in those days. It must have blown everybody away. And now yeah. we've become such a, a, a knowing society and we think we've seen it all before, nothing new, and we've become so um, jaded about new things anymore. Oh, that's, that's so, uh, you know, last year, whatever it is. And it's not until somebody stands on the, you know, like Pixar that changed the whole game again. Yeah, as you say, Pixar, great game changers once again, taking cinema two or three leaps forward. Yeah, and then if you, if you incorporate uh, stuff like Nightmare Before Christmas and all that sort of gear then with, with, with uh, Tim's stuff, and you go, wow, this is taking uh, taking it back to, to, to scaring kids away. Your kids should be scared. Yes, and, and that prompts me to suggest that having talked about our collections and uh, the great um, – Paul Allen's collection, one of the great houses that one day before we die, we have to engineer a visit to is Guillermo del Toro's Bleak House in the San Bernardino Valley in Los Angeles, where his collection of horror props, memorabilia, books and mannequins and stuff is it's so big. It's he's actually bought a house to help to to store the stuff in. It's fantastic. 
I think McGuomo is just one of the, the best uh, horror directors ever. When you think about Pan's Labyrinth and the way then he went into Hollywood and did yeah. all the stuff there, like... Blade 2. Did Blade 2. I say, he started with Blade 2. I'm thinking of... Uh, what's the man with the red... with the horns? Uh, red face. Uh, uh, what's... It's one of my favourite films. You know... Hellboy. Thank you. Hellboy. Why could I think of Hellboy? Hellboy and Hellboy 2. And, uh, uh, just amazing, amazing movies. And I just think as a director, his visions are incredible. Even the Spanish ones, you know, I'm not great. At, um, what I like, I like, I like a good foreign film. I don't mind subtitles, but when it's a visual film like like Guillermo del Toro, you're not watching the screen. I have to watch that twice because I'm reading the dialogue, then I'm watching the movie, and you you can't you miss so much then. So when you get his English speaking stuff and you go, oh, the shape of water, mm. the shape of water, what a, there, that is just a, a classic movie. That, cause that's based, as you know, on Creature from the Black Lagoon more than anything else. Yeah. And to bring that alive again and give it a whole new meaning is something else. And that's what I, what I really love about, about, um, horror is it can be reinvented. So old stories can be reinvented time and time again. Even if you know it, if you know the original story and they can reinvent it. Um, then it's great. Obviously, if it's done badly, not so great. Mm. One of my favourite short stories, I love reading horror. Um, I love James Herbert stuff. Uh, I was lucky enough to um, be friendly with James for a long time. He was great when I met him. Uh, I love Stephen King stuff. My favourite Stephen King story is called The Long Jaunt. It's a short story, and uh, even though it's, it's quite long in, in short story terms, it's quite long, but this is a work of genius. Sometimes Stephen King, you go, yeah, it's good, it's a good story, that. And then sometimes he'll hit you from behind and go, wow, this just takes a rug out from underneath you. And it's like he's rewritten the story of The Fly, mm-hmm. um, the original Fly. And if somebody said you had a, a box here and a box there and you actually transferred your whole body from there to there and it got stuck in with a fly, rewrite that story and change it completely but using that premise. See if you can make it better. Well, he's just taken that story and blown it out of the water. And it still scares me, even though I just think about the premise of it. So if anybody's listening, you want a really good short story that's quite long um, in, short story, in short story terms, but it's a brilliant piece of writing. It's called The Long Jaunt by Stephen King. Mastermind. You scored Mastermind. top marks in your three appearances on your specialist subjects. Your first one was The Vampire, which you talked about. Second one was Werewolf. Who would be your favourite werewolf? Would it be Lon Chaney? Would it be Claude Rains? Would it be Oliver Reed? It was Oliver Reed. Without a doubt, Oliver Reed, Curse of the Vampire. I think once again, 1966. It was his first starring role in a movie. He was petrified. Not just him. It was the makeup. It was, uh, I think it was Jerry Sangster who made that one, if I remember rightly. Mm. Uh, but it was the whole... The lighting on that movie, even from that, you know, as a, as a kid, I looked at it thinking, wow, this is such, such great lighting. The special effects were very good in those days, you know. It's, it's not like American Werewolf in London, which was just fantastic with John Landis stuff there. But for me, atmospherically, story-wise, all of that, and you had so much sympathy and you empathised with the character, I just thought it was wonderful. It was just a wonderful, wonderful film. And it scared the living hell out of me as a kid as well. And... Uh, and after that, Oliver Reed was just could do no wrong. I love it, loved him as an actor. Mm. Um, yeah, he, and you could see that from that movie, that was his first starring role, that the man was a star just from that alone. 
connections i'm thinking immediately i'm thinking over read castaway with amanda donahoe then i'm thinking yeah. amanda donahoe who has stolen my heart and elizabeth hurley will forgive me for that but amanda donahoe stole my heart many years ago and, and elizabeth hurley will be listening i hasten to add <laughs> in, yeah. my, in my fantasy the fantasy world in which i live <laughs> but she starred in a ken russell horror movie called the lair of the white worm which i thought was fantastic yeah. That was which, which bring it, bring it round full circle, was a yeah. Bram Stoker story. It was, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yes. It was. Of course, it was. Yep. I haven't seen that film for years and years and years. Do you know? Well, okay. Let's let's take it slight, you know, slight tangent on this. Then one of the best horror films ever. Who made Who made Where the White Worm? Do you know who made it? It was Ken Russell film. One another Ken Russell film. Oliver Reed, The Devils. Mm. The Devils is one of the scariest films ever. If I'm a Catholic, right, to watch the devils will put the literally put the fear of God inside you. If anybody's looking, oh, you know, those 1970s films, watch the devils. Ken Russell, it'll blow you away. It's the scariest thing. The Catholic, nothing scarier than the Catholic Church, I don't think. If you mm. go, you know, scratch the surface of the Catholic Church, wow, what an organization that is. And I'm a Catholic, I'm non practicing, but that's a film and half that is. Oliver yes. Reed, once again, talk about immerse yourself into a part. Oliver reading that, wow, you never see nothing like it. A period of mastermind, was that terrifying? Uh, yeah, it was. All three of them were terrifying. But once again, going back to my original statement at the beginning, is I like being petrified. I mm. like being in that chair. I like being scared. I like to test myself. I like to test myself physically and mentally, which is why I still train physically. You know, I, I run, I box, I get beaten up a lot. I like doing all that sort of stuff. And to test myself mentally, can I cope with the pressure of that? And not fold that chair and and still be me and still enjoy the process of it as well. I don't want to get on that chair, be petrified and, and hate the experience. I want to get in that chair, be petrified and love the experience. And that's what I do. And I try and raise to the occasion on it. And which is why each time I've done it, I've got all of my uh, special subject questions right. Because because I don't want to um I don't want to wing it. I want to do the homework. Um I actually want to go on there and win the programme. I never won it, sadly. Um but I was so proud of myself just getting all my questions on, on the specialist subjects. That was what meant anything to me more than anything else. Yeah, I think if, if you do well in your specialised subject, it underscores your expertise, but also yeah. legitimizes your appearance. Uh, which is why I went for Planet of the Apes again, and I went to the movies, and, uh, yeah, I thought, well, Planet of the Apes. Who does Planet of the Apes and Mastermind? No one. <laughs> but it, what was great, it, what, what, what's great about doing Mastermind on all those three subjects, on vampires and movies, werewolves and Planet of the Apes, it meant I could revisit all of those films uh, and sit there and enjoy them. And I wasn't just taking up time. It was part of my job. Uh, rather than just sitting there watching 40 vampire films, mm -hmm. I, I took notes on it and I loved every minute. Of it. Oh, I'd forgotten he did, forgotten he did that. I'd forgotten he directed that. All those little little uh, um, details that you forget that, that, that I find interesting. Mm -hmm. And it was great. And they're, they're no use to anybody else other than to me. And they bring back such, such happy memories for me as a kid of being scared. I don't know how many people can say that my happiest memories were when I was scared, but they are for me. <laughs> what I like about Mastermind particularly is the respect with which those researchers who compile the questions treated your subjects because they really tested you, didn't they? Yeah, they don't just go watch a couple of movies. They really go to, to uh, uh, extreme lengths. I don't know whether they go to Google and, and just get a couple of ideas or whether somebody actually sits there and watches the movies and pulls out certain facts because there are certain things that you can't get off of Google that you go, 
well, that's not you can't find that out unless you sat and watched those films. Mm. You need to, you know, sit there. They must have a team of people sitting there watching those movies. I love mm. it. Yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed the experience. I'm glad you did so well. Talk about your paintings then for a moment. I've, I've, I've mentioned the fact that you're specialising in horror subjects and you're working in the, in the medium of oil. In view of the number of canvases that you've painted and created over the last yeah. couple of years, do you foresee a Joe Pasquale horror painting gallery? gallery? Yeah, I, I do. In actual fact, um, what I'm finding is uh, I'm, I'm starting to use the barter system more and more in my life. People are saying, you know, I'm going to get my car fixed a little while ago. And the, blo the bloke that I said, how much do I owe you? He went, nothing. Just do me a painting. Really? What of? And he wanted me to do um, the original Joker uh, from Batman. Um, and what was his name? What was the original Joker? What was his name? Cesar Romero. Cesar Romero, right. But what was straight about Cesar Romero? He was a great Joker. But he would never shave his moustache off. He always had to wipe yes. makeup on the top of it. I remember doing a panto with Paul Shane. Remember Paul Shane from Heidi High? Yes. He played the game. He actually refused as well. He refused to shave his moustache off. I was on stage with a great big fat bloke, dressed as a woman, with a moustache, put white makeup powder, but it wasn't even good. He just put a bit of powder over it. You could see. And he had this gruff northern voice, right? And he was standing in the wings. This is when you could smoke in a theatre. He was standing in the wings, uh, smoking a roll-up fag, and, uh, and I would go out and do a scene with him. He would drop the cigarette on the floor, stub it out, walk on stage, blowing the smoke out, and go, all right, son, how are you? I went, oh, God, this is supposed to be my mum. <laughs> and, and it always reminded me of Cesar Romero that wouldn't, show, wouldn't change his stosh off. Like, he used to think, oh, this is my stosh, not get rid of it. Um, so anyway, Andy down the gallery said to me, oh, I said, what do you want to paint of? He went, I want the original Joker, Cesar Romero. So I finished it this week and he fixed my car for nothing. I gave him the painting. But what was really sickening about it is I really love this painting. It was really good. I was very proud of myself. It's the first time I've done this one. Mm. And I really wanted to keep it. Um, but sadly, I had to give it away. And as I was painting, I was thinking, I would much rather have just paid for my car than give this painting. Yes. But uh, sadly, I couldn't. I've had to give him one of my prized paintings that I absolutely love. And I know if I do it again, it won't be the same. It never is. Because mm. that, that painting is part of you. It's part of it. Uh, comes out of me. I know the uh, the, uh, the the subject is, but it's my my hands that have done that and I want to keep that. I don't even want to sell them. I know I do. I am going to sell them. I've sold a few already. But ultimately, I don't want to sell any of them, really. I love them because they come from me. It's a really weird thing to paint, to go, oh, there's painters and paintings and try and sell them. Yeah. And then somebody buys one, you go, I don't want to sell it to you. I want to keep it. It's a very weird thing. Yeah, yeah they, they, you're letting go of your babies, aren't you? Yeah. It's not the same as stories because writers say, as you know, there's a, a, there's a phrase in it about, when you give it to the editor, you have to kill, let them kill your babies, let them do it, get, get rid of it, because you can't, you can't control it because you're too close to it every time and you can't see that you've overwritten that, that sentence, or you've overwritten that, that whole book, for example. You need someone to say, listen, let's cut that down. You want to get to the story, you want to get to the meat, you don't need that, you don't need this. And it's the same with the paintings. They mean something to me and I don't want to give them away to somebody else to criticise. Yes, I understand. Um, I'm, I'm going to have taken up enough of your time. I'm going to wrap this baby up. Dead Dubs and Doomsticks 
Dead Nubs and Doom 62, both published by Caffeine Nights. You can get, the, get them in all book, good bookshops, order them up, or you can go to Caffeine Nights Books, all one word, dot com to order your Joe Pasquale books. Several more Joe Pasquale books coming out shortly. Thank you, sir, very much for your time. As always, it's a joy, absolute joy. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for uh, allowing me to talk about one of my passions. Oh, great. It's been perfect. Thank you very much indeed. We're not going to be back next week or the week after. Why not? <laughs> oh, no. I'll tell you for why, because I've got, <laughs> I've got to finish. I've got to finish my latest novel in the Steam, Smoke and Mirrors series, which is The Conan Doyle Curiosity. Uh, but we will be back, I promise you, with more fascinating guests taking us behind the scenes. So we will see you in a couple of weeks' time. And from producer Mark Edmonds and me, we will be back, whether you like it or not. See you soon. Ah, oh, the eloquence of the young man who is the genius behind all of this. <laughs>